Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you very much. I'm Nicholas, and I'm a sexaholic. Um, I acted out with pornography, masturbation, prostitution, adultery, promiscuity, sexualizing men, women, children, animals, and objects, voyeurism, exhibitionism, romantic fantasy, sexual intrigue, and emotional affairs. And uh, by the grace of God and the program of Sexaholics Anonymous, I haven't had to do any of that stuff for uh, 25 years. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. Um, I have actually came into recovery on the 10th of December, 1990. I was 12-step by someone in another S fellowship. Uh, her name was Virginia. And she mentioned the phrase sexual addiction, which is something I'd never heard before. And uh, it just sent me into a complete spin, just hearing these two words. I literally couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't walk in a straight line. It was something about these two words, which was just like being hit with a sledgehammer. Now, she said a lot of things to me in the next week or so. And most of it I didn't understand. But I later on came to see that it was all true, what she'd said. It was just, it was in a different language. It was in the language of recovery, which I didn't understand at that time. I was, uh, you know, I was an expert in the language of lust, but in the language of recovery, I was a complete beginner. And one of the things that she said to me, which I'll never forget, she says, you've been out of your body for a long time. Now, I don't know what she meant by that. But as I progressed in recovery, I came to understand what that did mean that I was literally not inhabiting the feeling part of my body. I was somewhere up here. I was out of my body. I was in my head, and all I could feel below my neck was numb or lust. That was about it. Maybe rage sometimes, rage, numb, and lust. That was about all I could feel below. There was not anything like the kind of spectrum of feelings, the rainbow of feelings which I can experience today. Uh, now, why was that? Well, you know, my, my earliest memory at the age of two was being hit because I'd hurt myself and I was crying. Uh, my earliest sexual memory is at the age of five. Uh, I've got a number of other memories from my childhood which indicate that, you know, I, I, I was suffering from post-traumatic stress. Uh, about several things that had happened uh, and that I had um, I had a lot of feelings, a lot of stuff going on inside me, which wasn't directly connected with anything that was happening so right now, was, ha- was connected with stuff that was happening back in my childhood. And so once I'd come into recovery and once I put the lust down and actually the alcohol and the food down, then I, I had to start the difficult process of healing the feelings, sometimes called second stage recovery. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about today. But before I sort of launch it deeper into that, I just need to say, for those of you who are new, right, our, our program consists of four things. We have to join the fellowship, get a sponsor, work all 12 steps, and do service. And when we do that, it clears away the blockage so that God's grace can reach us and keep us sober because I am completely powerless over lust. I always will be. I'm going to die a lust addict. The only question is whether I'm going to die drunk or sober. I need a power greater than myself because I cannot fight lust. Absolutely impossible for me to fight something as powerful as lust. So that's why I need to have a power greater than me to deal with that. But I have to do my part, join the fellowship, get a sponsor, work all 12 steps and do service. So what I'm really going to be talking about is second stage recovery. Okay, so 
uh, it's great to see so many old friends on the call. And I know that you all have your own stories and journeys in this area. But mine is mine. And so I'm just going to talk about that. Um, I spent most of my childhood actually dodging my feelings by various different ways. I developed the techniques for not feeling stuff. Um, fainting, dissociating, that's kind of like vacating the current reality, just going somewhere in my head, going off into fantasy or, or thinking about something. You know, I was a big thinker. And if I did a lot of heavy thinking, it would take me out of my feelings and so on. It changed the way that I felt. I would, I would act them out. I could act out my feelings, particularly with sex and food. And actually, some of my feelings, I would actually sexualize. For instance, any anger that I had, I would actually sexualize that. I would turn that into a sexual feeling. And that would lead to excitement and arousal and then acting out. So another, another favorite was just going numb just sort of numbing out and particularly helpful in that area for numbing out my feelings would be food, sex, and later on alcohol as well. These were all good ways of not feeling whatever it was that I might otherwise have been feeling. And then last but not least, there's going into rage. Now, Rage is a particular favorite of mine. I used to walk about, I, I, I was bullied in my home. I was beaten a lot. And, but when I discovered rage, the beating stopped. Because once I discovered rage, yes, my father and mother, they knew that I was going to kill them if they touched me. You know, I, I, had, I had tapped a source of power, which I could then use in a very offensive kind of way to protect myself. But also then, um, I mean, people would sort of stay away from me at school because it was like the rage was pouring out of me. You know, I was just a very, very angry person. Now, I have, I've learned a lot of things along the way. And I'm, so I may not deal with this in chronological order, but just in sort of almost like topic order. That rage, I've come to learn. I learned this in recovery. Um, after I'd been uh, sober for three years, I went to a treatment center in America and they told me some very useful things. I got some useful information there. And one of them, which I've had cause to use many times since, is that rage is a combination of high-level fear and high-level shame. So the last time that my father threatened to beat me, I was afraid. I was in high-level fear. But I was also in high-level shame. It's a very shameful thing for a 14-year-old or something to be beaten. And the combination of those two came together nicely, and I went into rage. And at that moment, the beating stopped. And that's kind of like a really useful thing to have on the battlefield, rage, but it's not terribly useful in ordinary society. You know? So when I came into recovery and I started to uncover my history of uh, childhood sexual abuse, and this rage suddenly came up, huge gushes of rage. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. I didn't know what to do with it. I, 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 was, I, would, I had no emotional intelligence. I had no real sort of idea about how to handle things. And, and going to a treatment center, I spent six weeks in treatment um, in what they call, it was a trauma resolution unit uh, of this particular treatment center that I went to. And, um, and you know, I remember the first day uh, I was in the group, literally uh, sat down in, in the, in, in, with, with my group members in, in a circle, and I started to shake like this. And before I knew what, I was down on the floor, and they were all piled on top of me. And I was actually reliving an experience from my childhood, which I had no idea had happened. Uh, but uh, but I, I've now come to see that I think it's very likely that as a young child, I was shaken by an adult, probably more than, more than once, and that that was what was happening in that moment. I was reliving a memory. And I remember the 
group therapist saying to me afterwards, he said, um, he said, you went into a trauma bubble. He said, and, and there's probably lots more of those down there. So that was interesting information I didn't know. But it began to explain to me why I would have these strange reactions to things. For instance, if this is in recovery, if I was ever kissed on the lips by an elderly woman, by an old woman, which occasionally happened with some of, some, some of my aunts and things like that, I would get the shakes. I mean, really bad shakes. I mean, it was like I had the palsy. Another one was if a fire engine went past with its, uh, with its siren going and, 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 the, and the blue light, I would be in tears. Now, these, these are kind of strange reactions to something that's got nothing to do with the present moment, but must have something to do with something that happened to me back then. So I'm now, I'm now, I'm in a bit of a mess because I, I haven't learned what my feelings are. I haven't learned to recognize them and I haven't learned how to handle them appropriately. And here I am in recovery. I've got a bit of sober, put, uh, you know, put, put, the, put the masturbation, the pornography down and things like this. I'm beginning to get some sort of sense, but all these memories are coming to the surface and I'm a bit of an emotional wreck. You know. Well, this was a difficult time for me. And particularly the whole business of realizing that I'd been sexually abused, that when that came to the surface, I remember, uh, again, the woman who had uh, 12-stepped me into recovery, um, she, said, uh, she said, if you ever, if anything ever comes up about your childhood that's upsetting, please call me. Now, I, I had actually tried to call her on a number of occasions, not that I was upset because I just wanted to say hi to her, you know. And every time I'd run, she had been engaged. Her phone had been engaged. But this time, when the memory of the sex abuse came up, I got through immediately. And, and I think she saved my life in that moment, you know, because I could feel the shame from the sexual abuse coming down over me like a tidal wave and pushing me down. And I could feel myself going down and, you know, down there was deep, deep, bottomless depression and suicide. It was like I could feel that pressure down, you know. And, and, and she said to me, get angry, get really angry. And so I did. I got angry. And somehow that helped me to break through this particular difficult time. And I had two other huge outpourings of rage before that memory was sort of cleansed, you know, and now I can think about that. I can think about what happened or what may have happened. And I can think of my abuser and I can feel complete forgiveness for them. I, I can choose to forgive. And because I've chosen to forgive and I've taken the actions of love towards them, the feelings have followed. So I actually feel forgiving, feel loving. So early recovery, first few years, I mean, the first, yes, the first year in recovery, I mean, I cried most days. I did a lot of crying in my first year in, in, in recovery. Um, it just came, you know, and, and of course, I hadn't, I hadn't really cried at all. I mean, I'd been, you know, I'd been in, in the army, I'd been an army officer, and, you know, it wasn't done to cry. So, you know, I, I stuffed it all down. And that, that's what I've been doing with it. I've been stuffing it down, you know, numbing it, stuffing it with food, with sex, whatever, keeping it down. You know. And now I, it's like I couldn't, I couldn't anymore. It's just coming to the surface. Now, this chaotic phase didn't last forever, I, I'm pleased to say. The process of working the steps, I once heard it described by a, an old-time NA from Nashville, actually. He said it's like emptying a dustbin. You know, the process of doing steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, the seven key steps in the middle of our program is like emptying out the dustbin and cleaning it up, sorting through the rubbish, picking out one or two good bits to put back in, and then you've got a clean can for when you're going to need a clean can. When am I going to need a clean can? When some 
thing hits me hard emotionally. And, and then it's literally, it's as if the can can hold the feelings for long enough to not act them out, to not reach for my drug of choice, to not dissociate, to sort of stay present. Now, this does it's an overnight thing, you know, and I, I don't want any of you to have to get the idea that I'm cured, you know, that I'm fixed or uh, this is a work in progress. And I think it will go on being a work in progress, but it's actually now become an interesting and exciting journey because I'm getting to understand in a way how God made me before humans managed to sort of screw a few things up. And then once I took over, screwing myself up uh, in a big way with all my addictions and my acting out and my all my all my other behaviors and so on. So I, I mentioned about rage being a combination of high level fear and high level shame. So I'm just going to while I before I move on from there, just to mention the tool, the key tool for rage, which which I found very helpful. It's not an easy one to use, but it's it's like this that. Rage is a combination of high-level fear and high-level shame. And these two things are supporting each other. And we go from there into rage. And the way to break this is to ask yourself, what's the shame? And when you do that, the whole thing collapses. The problem is that when I'm in a rage out, I'm in a red out, and I don't, there's, there's maybe there's no blue sky to ask myself that question. But that's an incredibly valuable question. Just to ask by asking the question, that collapses the rage. And today, I've got this clean can, so I can have feelings. Now, I also have to learn the difference between a thought and a feeling. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? But no, it's not. Because I used to say things like this. I feel that it's a nice day today. I feel that you're being unkind to me. I feel abandoned. You made me feel sad. Now, all of these, all of these are lies. These are thoughts, not feelings. I had to learn that my feelings are things that happen in my body, not between my ears. I had to understand that pain is something I feel in my body. Anger, sadness, fear, shame, and guilt are things I feel in my body. And I had to learn to identify them. And that's what I'm feeling. And to have a fairly short list of feeling words. And the other things that I thought I was feeling, like self-pity, loneliness, fear of angry women, and lust, actually are going on in between my ears. And to differentiate, to learn to differentiate between a thought and a feeling. And so I'm really very cruel to my sponsors. They are not allowed to say, I feel that, I feel like, I feel anything ED, with ED on the end, or you made me feel. Okay. Because I need to sort out and I need to help them to sort out what's going on here and what's going on down below. So a simple list of feelings and get used to identifying them and to ban from our vocabulary certain phrases which are not, which are, to say I feel that you're a nice person is actually a lie. I, I imagine you're a nice person. I think you're a nice person, but it's not a feeling. Okay. Uh, I was um, I was shown a um, a very simple way to sh to share my feelings. Um, it's called the confrontation technique. When you and now I name the behaviour. When you slap my face, I felt and name the feeling, angry. Full stop. Now. It's very good to practice this, but practice it with somebody who uh, who knows about it. And the, the the response is thank you. When you name the feeling, I felt 
name of feeling, full stop, response, thank you. That's really helpful, really useful. Okay, now the Just for Today card talks about just for today, I will not show anyone that my feelings are hurt. They may be hurt, but today I will not show it. Now that's something that I get I'm learning to do. Uh, I've been through this stage of emotional childhood, and now I'm growing into a sort of emotional adulthood. And this is perfect. The Just for Today card teaches me that I can choose to show people whether I'm hurt or not. And that this is another aspect of emotional sobriety for me to understand the difference between a feeling and something like love, which is a choice. So love is a decision. It's not a feeling. Once I choose to love somebody, once I choose to forgive someone, once I choose to take the actions of love towards them, the feelings that I have in the past associated with love follow. But if I choose to resent, to be unforgiving, to take the actions of hatred, then the feelings follow as well. And I feel hatred and I feel miserable. So, again, understanding that some things that I've been calling feelings like love are actually acts of the will. And therefore, they're they're really centered in the heart. So I have thoughts and defects that are centered in here, acts of the will, and I have these emotions that go on elsewhere in my body. And just being able to differentiate between them, to learn the difference between these, is very helpful. Now, that time has gone just in a flash. I'm up to my 25 minutes. So I'm going to leave it there. And thank you very much for letting me share. And I assure you that if your experience is different, that's okay too. You know, all I can do is tell you my own. Thanks for letting me share. Okay, thanks. I'm Buddy. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Thank you, Nicholas. Um, I identify right down the line with all of that. Um, in my case, though, it was 21 years sexually sober before all of this shit came up out of my gut. Um, I'd always read our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I never really fully understood the physical aspect of that until I was in Madrid for the convention and I found myself isolating. And when I got back to the States, I really started to get in touch with the physical aspect. And I was confronted with a choice. I was either going to lust or I was going to die, one or the other. And I went through a physical upheaval. I was in a fetal position, screaming my head off. It became clear to me that when I was eight years old, I had I had always known I nearly drowned. I didn't understand that I was being treated with Percocet, which is opium. So here I actually had a physical addiction to opium when I was eight years old. All that shit came out. And my experience with that was what Bill Wilson experienced in, in Towns Hospital. It's time. Okay. So um, what I learned was don't quit before the miracle happens. So thanks, Nick. Thanks, buddy. Ionis, you're next. My Nick, Ionis, thank you very much for the share. Um, I heard you speak before about uh, food. I wondered if you can speak specifically about um, food and lust, if they have a link, if there's uh, any triggers related and, and how they affect feelings and such. Thank you. Okay, Yanis, thank you. Yeah, food, uh, lust and gluttony are definitely twins, and gluttony triggers lust, and sometimes for some sexaholics has to be dealt with first. Uh, so if people are chronically relapsing uh, in SA, then I usually suggest that they get themselves abstinent in a pro- food program. And that seems to help. What uh, what um, food sobriety gives me is emotional stability. 
I'm not spiking my blood sugar uh, with uh, complex carbohydrates. My, my, my blood sugar is stable, and I'm much less likely to be emotionally unstable. And I say, it's look at that. Uh, it's definitely a trigger for lust. So if you're a chronic slipper, take a look at that as a possible answer. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Ionis. And uh, I see someone's hand is up. Three, four, seven, six are the last four on the telephone. Yeah, thank you very much. That's me, Falker. Can you hear me okay? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I'm Falker Sexaholic. Thanks a lot for your share, Nicholas. And uh, I was also thinking about uh, my uh, my life. Uh, the last time I cried was when I was 18 years old. I'm 32. And sometimes I think, well, some po- at some day there will be the point where I start crying and all the emotions come up and uh, I finally will get some, some more healing. And uh, also this idea of a childhood trauma. I always, I, I very often I think about whether I could have had uh, a childhood trauma or not and to have an explanation where the addiction and all of that is coming from. But um, maybe there was none. I'm not sure about that. And um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe as a question for you, do you, do you think that every addict had some sort of childhood trauma and um, that is where the addiction and the uh, emotional and spiritual disease is coming from, so that something went wrong in the childhood, or maybe is it just inherited? This is what I also heard, and and I would uh, like to ask you for your opinion. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Volker. Um, it's interesting. Uh, the, the trauma could come before birth, could become during birth or after birth. And um, uh, I noticed that most of the people I've done uh, first steps with, uh, they fall into two categories, those who were sexually abused when they were very young and those who have no memories or very little memories of their childhood. Now, that itself is a concern. It's it's not kind of, you wouldn't say, it's not a sign of a, um, a, a normal, happy childhood if you can't remember any of your childhood at all. And a lot of people in that category. Now, I can't say for definite that these people have been abused, but it's at least it's it's there's a suggestion there. Um, and certainly, a lot of people whose stories I've listened to have it, have had childhood sexual trauma. Often, it's never actually come out of their mouth before. I've I've, I've listened to step ones where people have said something like. Uh, I had one just recently. Um, uh, my first sex experience was at the age of two, and my uncle showed me how to masturbate. And I said to him, well, what do we call that? And he said, oh, well, I suppose, that's, um, I suppose that's child sexual abuse. I said, yes. That's the first time that had been out of his mouth. And I said, but also, because it's your uncle, what else? And he said incest. And that, that's the first time that being out of his mouth, you know. And this is what we, so much of the, the abuse is denied. Oh, well, you know, I deserved it. You know, uh, you know, we make excuses for ourselves or others and so on. We minimize it, we rationalize it, we justify it, we intellectualize it. You know, we, we do something with it so that we don't feel the feelings associated with it which, of course, are of deep uh, terror, sadness, um, abandonment, um, rage, grief. Um, and those things are still there to be worked through. But the important thing is that, and I, I guess that I would really like you all to hear this loud and clear, that you can get through this stuff. There are many people in the fellowship who have got through it. And, uh, and can share their, their experience of having done so. And, uh, you know, if, if something like this comes up for you, call, call somebody, call me, call me night or day, anytime, night or day, you can call me. If something like this comes up, we can get through it. 
Thank you. Excellent question. Thanks, Nicholas. Farzad, you're up next. Farzad, <laughs> thank you very much, Nicholas. I am going to make a brief question. And the question is, uh, how would you define, not define or deal with boredom? I suppose that's more of a defective character. But when I get boredom, it is as if I'm feeling no feelings, really. I don't know if it's numbness or and if there's a solution for that. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Farzad. It gives me an opportunity to... Um, to, to mention the one thing that I missed when I was talking before, and that is the 10th step, okay? The 10th step is designed uh, for use whenever I'm disturbed. Now, boredom is a form of disturbance. So when I'm disturbed, the important thing is to actually try to identify what feelings are going on. As you say, boredom itself is a defect. What's going on underneath? Am I angry, afraid, sad, shamed, guilty? numb what's it it's often in my experience is anger it's kind of like it's oh damn this you know it's it's i'm I've got this pent-up energy inside wants to get out and um and i i'm frustrated so the 10th step is that is the medicine that i need to take whenever i'm disturbed and um and to try to identify the, those feelings, that's a very helpful exercise. And then we share it because, as the big book tells us in our 10th step, we have to continue to watch for selfishness, uh, resentment, fear, self-pity. When these crop up, we ask God immediately to remove them, share them with another individual, make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone, and then turn our attention to someone we can help. And this is this the, the, this this five step tool, which is so useful whenever we're disturbed. So, um, dig deep, you'll get the answer. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jackie. You're up next. Thank you. I'm Jackie. I'm a sexaholic. Um, good to hear you share, Nicholas. I. <laughs> Uh, I was really surprised as the first time I heard somebody share that, um, you know, uh, hearing uh, ambulance and that uh, crying. And I was like, okay, I know I've had some fragmented traumas in the past, but um, yeah, uh, good to hear that. I could identify, let me say it that way. Um, did, did you find out for yourself that um, having that uh, reaction towards uh, that noise was related to a trauma or as a result of trauma? Um, thank you, Jackie. I, I've wondered about this one. I mean, it was true that I stood and watched the ambulance take my father away and I never saw him again. He died in hospital. And so it could have been that, but it, but it, it actually, it went with the red, with the blue light. It didn't go with the, with the siren. Um, but the, the other things, I suspect that probably much younger than that, I, would, I was frightened by a fire engine, probably, you know, and burst into tears or something, and then perhaps was, I don't know, dealt with summarily in some way or other. You know, uh, we weren't exactly uh, encouraged to have our feelings in those days. You know, do. So it's something that happened back then. Um, and the thing, but the thing today is that when it happens, because it still happens, I'm aware of it. And I allow myself to have a tear. And I don't try to beat, I don't beat myself up about it. You know, you're oh, on, you know, pull yourself together. You know, you're a man or whatever. Just, I just let, my, let myself have that, that brief tear because feelings come and go. They have a life of their own and they always move on if you let them. And it's, it's when they sort of harden into things like resentment or self-pity or depression that we're really in difficulties. I just let my feelings be. They're all real, but they're not, they're not all valid. So I can have them. I can let them be, just let them pass, but not act on them, not act them out or act on them. I think that's probably another important aspect to this emotional sobriety. Thank you. Thanks, Nicholas. Daniel has put into the chat a link, and that will take you to recordings of, of these speaker meetings. 
And Simone, I saw your hand had been up. Uh, did you still have a question? Uh, yes, thank you. I would like to ask uh, Nicholas uh, if, and thank him for his sharing, if he uh, sees any uh, connection between emotional sobriety and uh, codependence to women or parents or people in general. Uh, thank you. Wow. Simone, thank you for that question. I, one of my continuing problems is that when I am around women, I become nice personish. I become a different kind of person. And I see myself do it and I hate it. And my voice changes. I become more seductive. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm charming. It's like, and I think this is a, another PTSD response. <laughs> I remember I, um, I had a dog at one point and, um, I took him round to the house of this elderly lady who was in AA. And, you know, he was, he was a bit of a, He was a bit of a street dog in a way. But when we walked into his into her apartment, it was like he went up on tiptoe and his head went up and he sort of pranced across the room like some prize dog, you know. And I thought, you little so-and-so, you you know, you know, you know, you're going to get you're going to get pampered here, you're going to get fed. And but that's what I do too. You know, and stopping doing that is really, really difficult. Um, and I'm just sort of sharing it, learning up about it. So, but codependence is such a difficult thing because it's um, there are so many sort of different definitions of it, and it's it's a bit like squeezing a bag of jelly. You know, so uh, what 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 do we really mean by that? Well, um, difficulty in um, in being moderate, difficulty in um, taking care of my own needs independently, uh, difficult, difficulty in um, uh, expressing my own needs and wants, and things like that. Uh, difficulty in being honest. I mean, I think that's probably what it boils down to a lot of the time for me. And um, these are defects, of course. Now, once I've identified a defect, then the program's very clear what I need to do is to identify the countervailing virtue and then surrender that defect to God, humbly ask him to remove it and replace it with the opposite. So people-pleasing. God, please remove my people-pleasing and let me please only you. Let me be concerned with pleasing only you. Uh, please take away my inauthenticness and give me authenticity. So in the moment, I get to do my... Tenth step, and uh, say the seventh step prayer. Uh, the, you know the, the program is just so brilliant; it works so well. But I, I guess that I, I myself find it. I, I was in a in Coda for a while. I've been to Anon programs. I find it more helpful personally if if I'm identifying a primary addiction and I'm doing a program of recovery specifically for that addiction so that's uh i hope that that covers it somehow. thank you very much thank you thanks nicholas uh now uh, if you have less than 30 days fewer than 30 days of sobriety uh please go ahead and raise your virtual hand and get in line and then we'll go to nancy right now nancy yes yeah hi nicholas thanks so much for sharing I, uh, you said that our feelings are in our bodies, and thank you so much for that. My therapist has taught me that. What about my body holds memories? Can you speak to that? Oh, yes. Thank you, Nancy. Yes, that's, that's, that's definitely the case. Um, and uh, uh, so that, that's why, in a sense, that, that this whole healing the feelings things can be so disconcerting because I'm suddenly I'm feeling a pain in my backside and I don't know what that's about but it's very sharp and it's rather distressing I wonder what that's 
caused by, you know, but it's almost like, then I got to the point of saying, well, whatever happened, it's happened. Okay. And and no amount of belly aching about it is going to bring it back and undo it. It's, It's happened, you know? So it's almost about accepting everything, accepting my past about the good and the bad and everything that's happened back then. And so not, that's not to say it's right. That's not to say it's good, but to say it's happened. And now we're going to treat, I'm going to treat myself as I would a, a friend instead of doing what was done to me, instead of bullying myself, instead of being unkind and cruel and, and, dismissing what's going on and say okay you know you're having you're having a body memory now something's something's been held in your muscles in the muscles of your body and now it's being released maybe it will go maybe that's it maybe it's gone now but yeah i think you know so many parts of my body hold all kinds of different memories thank you for bringing that up thank you akiva you're next Thank you very much. Uh, it was partially addressed. Um, my question is, uh, let's say for myself, I found that once I I have my primary addiction, as, as Nicholas, you mentioned, the primary addiction, uh, but how do you make sure that you're not, uh, let's say for me, a lot of my things are adult childhood. And let's say for me, I my primary addiction is sexaholism. And because of my fourth step, I undog that I'm like Essanon, Elanon, ACOA, you know, and dysfunctional families. Like, And that stuff, because I started working that stuff, I had to go to like three times less SA meetings. Not because like I slacked off, but because I wasn't lusting so much. It wasn't triggered so much. Um, my question to you is, how do you know that you're, like not over focusing that so to say not going so, so superficial and uh, do you feel like it's necessary to get the secondary programs or everything you do is worked within the framework of a say and you're just, just like you don't go to other meetings okay thank you um uh, no two people are the same in recovery in my experience and and so i i can only say what worked for me and that i mean i've been in about a dozen fellowships altogether um i'm now in currently in 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 uh in three fellowships active really in two i have one sponsor who covers two of those fellowships and another sponsor that covers the food issues which is a kind of a technical sponsor i make sure i don't ride two horses i think that's really important you know, I go to one sponsor I go to for everything and the other sponsor I go only for technical technical issues. So um, the, the primary addiction, that one obviously is key. But asking, knowing what your secondary addiction is and, and having that covered, I think is really, really important. Now, if, if that is an, an ACA type uh, fellowship, um, I, I would, for instance, <laughs> okay, I, I I did coda for a while. Okay, uh, I at that time I was in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, so I knew a little bit about relationship addiction, and it certainly seemed to me that most of the people in my coda group were actually relationship addicts in denial. And so, if one can, out of the ACA or anon experience, identify something that is really itself a secondary addiction or a primary addiction, that that would be be more effective in my experience to work on that than to work on the anon issues. I mean, I, I, I did some strange things in coding and I wouldn't, I wouldn't carry a woman's uh, suitcase for her, you know, because that would be codependent. You know? I mean, I don't know what kinds of very strange ideas uh, in early recovery is a bit embarrassed about now, you know, but um, that's it. The primary addiction, the secondary addiction definitely need to be covered. And I think there's a limit to the number of fellowships that we can have. Um, um, and I would say probably two to three is about max, really. And unless something becomes really, really serious. I mean, for instance, usually in, in at some stage of recovery, 
financial issues become important. And then, you know, DA, BDA, Under Owners Anonymous, something like that could be very helpful. I, I joined these fellowships, learned the tools. You know, I've been, I learned the DA tools. I've been, I've been um, solvent in DA for over 20 years. I don't go to DA meetings. I don't have a DA sponsor, but I'm, you know, I have, I have some DA tools which I use. That helps. Thanks. Lee. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, great share. Uh, I have a million thoughts uh, and maybe some feelings. How do I know? Uh, but I'm with you and that I uh, have a basic food addiction or food problems, uh, lust very early on and added on drugs and alcohol, and they were the ones that were killing me first, so that was my introduction. So once I got cleaned up and those three fellowships, those three things, the, addic- the quote, feelings did come out, and I've done years of experiential therapy, uh, what I, and have had a lot of the realizations you described, uh, got so rageful once that I almost uh, attacked a therapist uh, physically. So it was, it's been really uh, interesting uh, and helpful. The things that come up for me is uh, to label feelings uh, also as experiences. Uh, when I experience something, I'm not necessarily thinking about it. And in addition to the painful ones, I experience joy now, uh, and I experience things that are spiritually connected, have mystical experiences. So uh, one question is, how do you uh, relate feelings in spirit and, and uh, experiences? Uh, the other question, and, and I had another experience, is, is that I was mentally ill as a child, and it was not diagnosed. And that mental illness caused trauma and caused me to experience things that didn't really happen. So mental illness is another form of trauma. Uh, And in addition to experiences, I have developed something that is somewhere between a thought and a feeling, and that's intuition. And I have a lot of intuitive thoughts and intuitive feelings that come about like uh, my intuition will tell somebody's nice. So anyway, I have uh, too many thoughts, said too many things too fast because I always do that. So that's where I throw it out. Experiences, intuition, and uh, see how those things figure into where you are. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. Um, I have the same the same thing. I, I you know I came into recovery. My my head was like a washing machine. You know, it's going round and round and round and round. You know, and then after a while, working the twelve steps and going to meetings and doing the things that we do, one day it switched off, and then it came back on again. And, and, but it was an amazing experience that that there was this thing, quiet mind, serenity. You know, we will comprehend the word serenity. We will know peace. Ah, this is it. Aha! <laughs> and um, that I experience a lot of intuition, intuitive thought and decision. And I pray for it every day. Uh, specifically in the morning, I pray for intuitive thought and decision. And, and, uh, and often, you know, I will just literally go through the day doing one right thing after the next until the last right things to get to bed early and, uh, you know, thank, thanking God for a sober day. And, and it just works. And that I, I'm, not, I'm not a mystic in the sense of somebody that has, uh, sees visions or anything like that. In fact, I think if I did, uh, I would be quite sceptical about that. Uh, but I, I do have tremendous feelings of joy, love in my heart. I think that's the thing. Who loves wins? Who hates loses? That's the amazing thing. If, 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 you know, if my heart is full of love, I feel happy. It's like, wow. Um, I mean, I'm, at the moment, I've just moved house. I'm living on my own. And the house is actually really quite cold. But I'm amazingly happy because I've 
made my amends, I'm at peace. And uh, I mean, I'm looking forward, uh, not in any, with any dread, to the last, the last lap. You know, I am on the last lap. I'm 71 now. I mean, I'm on the last lap. I'm, and I'm looking forward to that and to what happens beyond that. But I, I would be myself very suspicious about having any visions and also about taking direct dictation from God. You know, if I heard a voice saying, do that, I would not go and do that. I would call someone, check it out with them, look, you know. And also I would apply the test for God's will. Is this honest? The thing this voice is telling me to do, is it honest, unselfish, pure and loving? And if it's not honest and unselfish and pure and loving, then it's out. But if it is, then I would check it out with someone else. And if that checked out, then do it. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not somebody, I did hear on one occasion, I did hear a voice and I did take that advice and I'm very glad I did. Uh, but um, that was before I came into recovery. <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.